Hello to all you travelers out there on the road to evidence-based literacy instruction. I'm Kate Wynn, classroom teacher and host of IDA Ontario's podcast, Reading Road Trip. Welcome to the show. We are so excited to be bringing you episode eight of our second season. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast from the traditional land of the Mississauga Anishinaabe. We are grateful to live here and thank the generations of First Nations people for their care for and teachings about the earth. We also recognize the contributions of Métis, Inuit, and other Indigenous peoples in shaping our community and country. Along with this acknowledgement and in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, we would like to amplify the work of an Indigenous author. And this week we are sharing Makusi Loves Music by Yayi and Chelsea June of Twin Flames. Makusi loves music, but what makes music in the Arctic so special? Join Makusi as he practices throat singing and learns songs, drumming, and more. Explore everything from traditional instruments to dances to the origin of the brass bands in the Arctic today. Grab your instruments or sing along. This journey through the history of music in the Arctic is sure to get your toes tapping. Written by renowned Canadian indie rock duo Chelsea June and Yayi of Twin Flames, this vibrant and engaging book introduces young readers to the exciting world of traditional and modern Inuit music. Add this book to your home or classroom library today. And now, on with the show. It is such a pleasure to introduce our guest for this week's episode of Reading Road Trip. Dr. Jack Fletcher is the Hugh Roy and Lily Kranz Cullen Distinguished University Professor of Psychology at the University of Houston. Dr. Fletcher, a child neuropsychologist, has conducted research on many issues related to dyslexia and other learning disabilities, including definition and classification, neurobiological correlates, and intervention. Dr. Fletcher has written more than 400 articles in peer-reviewed journals. I think it is fair to say he is an expert on this topic, and he is here today to share this expertise related to dyslexia. Welcome, Dr. Fletcher. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Just so we're all on the same page before we get into this big topic, how do you define dyslexia? Well, my uh, approach to definition is pretty uh, simple. Uh, I define dyslexia as a reading problem that occurs at the word level. It's a problem with uh, identifying words and spelling words in isolation. Okay. Is there a cause of dyslexia and what are the risk factors for it? Well, it's, it's hard to say uh, that there's a, a cause, and there, there are certainly multiple uh, risk factors. It, it doesn't boil down to a single cause. I think what, what's really uh, misleading when people talk about causes is they want to make this uh, make cause sort of a, a binary uh, variable. It's either biological or environmental. Well, we know that uh, the proximal causes of dyslexia certainly involve the brain. Uh, and uh, there are genetic factors that make brains at risk so that some kids are harder to teach uh, than others. Uh, and it's harder for, you know, I'd say about 40% of, of kids to really learn to read uh, without really explicit and fairly intense uh, instruction. Uh, so when we talk about uh, causes, what we tend to do is to underemphasize the role of the uh, environment and particularly the home literacy environment and the uh, instructional uh, environment. 
we know, for example, that uh, learning to read is not a natural process. We're not born with areas of the brain that are uh, evolutionarily predestined as reading centers. Uh, what happens instead is that uh, by essentially requiring kids to learn to read, the brain reorganizes uh, and builds on uh, areas of the brain that are re responsible for language and certain types of visual processing, not spatial processing and not vision, but really sort of a computational type of visual processing. If the brain does not receive that kind of experience, uh, it doesn't uh, develop uh, its capacity as a mediator of uh, reading. And so it's really essential when, when we talk about dyslexia to understand that dyslexia is a combination of both biological and environmental factors that put you at uh, risk. And a lot of the risk can be ameliorated uh, through certain types of literacy and language experiences, and in particular through uh, explicit instruction. And that kind of ties into the next question. So I once heard you say that dyslexia can often be prevented. Can you discuss what you mean by that and what are some things we can do to, to set kids up as best we can? Well, uh, people misunderstand often misunderstand what I mean when I say that. They, they think I'm saying that, uh, that the only cause of dyslexia is environmental and involves uh, instruction, uh, and that kids with dyslexia don't have other kinds of problems, like with writing or ADHD or something like that, uh, because dyslexia itself is a, is a complicated sort of problem. But I, when I use the term dyslexia, I'm referring specifically to the reading problem. And I believe that the uh, reading problem in many children can be prevented if children receive the type of instruction they need early in development, particularly in uh, kindergarten, first grade, and second grade. And there's, uh, there, there are multiple explanations uh, for that. Uh, one, is, one is to simply understand that in order to develop the neural systems that you need to learn to read, uh, the brain needs uh, repeated exposures to words and text. And that allows you to develop uh, automatic uh, word recognition uh, so that if you look at a word, you know what it is and you may know the meaning uh, as well, almost instantaneously. But to do that, uh, the brain has to understand uh, the alphabetic principle that uh, words uh, represent the sounds that we uh, process in language. And uh, dyslexia emerges because of that problem. Uh, kids can't relate sound and print. Uh, it starts with a difficulty relating, understanding uh, the phonetic structure of language. It extends to print when you're exposed to uh, print. Uh, and then because the child doesn't understand this relation of sound and print, that's the alphabetic principle. The underlying problem is what we call phonological awareness. The, the child can't access print. They can't read the words on the page or spell them. Uh, and because of that, the brain does not get the reading experience that it needs to develop uh, this other neural system uh, that you need in order to learn to read. So if we uh, teach kids intensively who are at risk really early, we can give them early access to print uh, and the brain has an opportunity to uh, obtain the kind of visual experience that it needs in order to become an automatic uh, reader.
If we go through uh, three or four years of schooling and the child is not able to access print uh, because they can't read uh, adequately, it's very difficult to uh, catch up in terms of reading experience and reading vocabulary. And so the neural system is never fully uh, developed and the child has a, a persistent reading problem. Uh, you know, in older kids, we might be able to uh, teach them to decode uh, adequately, but it's very hard to teach them to decode automatically, much less to read text automatically. Uh, and so uh, the key to dyslexia is early intervention. Uh, if we give kids explicit intensive instruction uh, early in the development, when they show uh, risk signs, uh, like, you know, a failure to appreciate letter sound relations, very early problems with rhyming, uh, broader things like uh, early language uh, difficulties. Um, uh, if we can identify these risk factors, uh, get kids in intervention uh, early, we can prevent this problem with access to print. And so outcomes are much better for early intervention compared to remediation. Uh, in some very nice studies done in the general education classroom by Carol Connor and in the remedial context by Maureen Lovett, they found that uh, intervention in first and second grade uh, was twice as effective uh, as intervention that occurred after uh, the third grade. Uh, and the reason is basically how the brain uh, develops in order to support uh, the reading brain. We sometimes hear the term specific learning disorder used as a diagnosis. How is that the same as or different from dyslexia? Well, specific learning uh, disorder uh, is an umbrella term that refers to different kinds of learning disabilities. There are multiple learning disabilities. In reading, there's dyslexia, which is by far the most common, but you can also have uh, a reading problem that involves comprehension. Uh, because of problems with background, uh, knowledge, vocabulary, uh, discourse level language processing, uh, receptive language, uh, problems along that magnitude where uh, you don't have a problem with decoding. Uh, you don't have dyslexia. But about four out of five uh, reading problems are going to involve uh, dyslexia. And then you can also have math difficulties, uh, either uh, at the level of computations uh, which we call dyscalculia, or you can have a problem with uh, math problem-solving skills, reading problems, staying organized, uh, things of that sort. And then you have written expression uh, problems. Some of them you see commonly in kids with uh, dyslexia, like spelling and handwriting uh, difficulties, but they can also occur uh, in isolation, and they can occur at the text level. Uh, you know, like writing stories or essays and things of that sort uh, because of organization and executive function problems. And where you often see that problem is in kids with uh, attention deficit disorder, where uh, the child has ADHD. They don't really have a problem with foundational reading skills, but because of their organizational and uh, uh, executive function problems, reading comprehension, in particular written expression, can be difficult. 
Here in Ontario schools, the discrepancy model is still used to identify a learning disability. So in uh, PPM, which is Policy and Procedure Memorandum 8 from our Ministry of Education, the the wording for the criteria for the um, identification reads, academic underachievement that is inconsistent with the intellectual abilities of the student, which are at least in the average range. My understanding is that the discrepancy model is not what we want to be using now. So how do you recommend identifying these students? Well, let me be uh, really clear. Uh, we've known for 30 or 40 years that, uh, that, that the discrepancy model is not valid. Uh, uh, there's no, there's no uh, difference in kids who don't have an intellectual disability who read at levels that are expected uh, for their IQ uh, versus kids who uh, are so-called low achievers who read at levels that are um, inconsistent. I'm sorry, low, low achievers are kids who read at levels uh, expected for IQ. And then you have kids that are discrepant. Uh, and those kids, those groups clearly don't uh, differ along a number of dimensions. They don't differ in things like phonological awareness and rapid naming. Uh, IQ does not predict uh, intervention uh, response. Um, there's no difference in how the brain works in high and low key, low IQ kids who have uh, reading problems. I mean, the list just goes uh, on and on. Uh, so uh, there, there, there was a recent article in Scientific American in the December issue. I can send it to you if you like. Uh, that discusses not only the validity issues, uh, but also points out the uh, social justice uh, issues, that the use of IQ tests with kids that have uh, learning disabilities uh, uh, is unfair, uh, is subject to racial bias, uh, to social class bias, um, and so on. So there are lots of reasons not to use those types of models. Uh, the other model that people propose is called a pattern of strengths and weaknesses uh, model, which uh, some people also, which is also a discrepancy model, a cognitive discrepancy uh, model. And there's the same problems uh, with those models, uh, except they're probably magnified because uh, PSW models grossly under-identify kids with uh, learning disabilities uh, in general. You know, the, the population rate you know, it can be anywhere from five to 15%. Uh, these models identify two to 3% of kids as learning disabled. And, you know, frankly, shockingly, when they do say that, a, do identify a kid with a learning disability, uh, they're more likely uh, wrong than right. Uh, it's, it's just hard to understand why these kinds of models uh, persist, except as uh, plans for resource allocation, which is unfortunate. Uh, in my opinion, uh, the most important criterion uh, for identifying somebody uh, with a learning disability, especially dyslexia, uh, is instructional response. Uh, uh, we, we should uh, think about uh, people with dyslexia as individuals who did not have an adequate response to instruction that works with most uh, people. We should use multiple criteria for actually identifying that problem. Uh, we should use assessments of instructional response, uh, which are progress monitoring mo measures that we would collect during intervention. Uh, they should be routine in schools. Uh, we should also use norm reference achievement testing. We don't need any uh, cognitive tests uh, in older kids to identify uh, dyslexia. The cognitive tests are absolutely useful in identifying kids that are at risk 
for dyslexia in kindergarten and grade one. But after grade two, we should be focused on uh, reading, spelling, writing, arithmetic, academic measures. Um, and then we also have to be mindful of uh, the contextual factors and other disorders that are related to dyslexia. We need to uh, make sure that we address issues like attention deficit disorder, uh, oral language difficulties, uh, and so on, uh, because that does affect uh, treatment, uh, you know, for the child. Uh, so I, I, I basically advocate for what I would call an instructional model of dyslexia, where uh, uh, assessment of, of instructional response is paramount, and people with dyslexia have an unexpected reading problem because they don't respond to instruction uh, that works with most people. It's a persistent inability to respond to instruction. And that really ties into the next thing I wanted to ask you. You mentioned in, in that answer, instructional response. And I've also heard you say that dyslexia cannot be identified independently of instruction. And so uh, it kind of connects. It's pretty much what you just said, I'm sure. But how do we know, you know, we can certainly see that a student is struggling with word level reading, but how do we know whether it's dyslexia versus what some people call dystichia? They didn't get the right instruction. Well, the, o- the only way to know that is to, uh, there, there are two things that are key. The first is to understand the uh, history of instruction and the fidelity of instruction. Did the child get the instruction that they uh, need? Uh, and the second is to actually place the child in an appropriate uh, intervention, uh, monitor the child's response with progress monitoring measures. These are, these are fairly straightforward you know, in reading, you would you would have a child read uh, a list of words or a paragraph uh, for a minute, count the number of words they read correctly, and then you do that every two to three weeks and graph their response. And you give teachers that information because it allows them to make adjustments to what they're doing. They either know that their instruction is effective or it's not working, and they need to make um, adjustments. Now, when I, when I talk about this, uh, people get... Uh, all worried about how do you assess the fidelity of instruction? Um, how do you make these adjustments? How long should they be uh, in an intervention? Um, and I don't think those questions are really uh, that important if you're collecting data about uh, instructional response. I mean, how long should they uh, be in an intervention uh, as long as they're making uh, progress towards some sort of benchmark? Uh, that doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, it's when we get into formulae, into fixed criteria, when we forget the kids are individuals, uh, we start asking questions uh, like this, and they're just not necessary if you're, if you're collecting uh, data. So to go back to your question, how do you differentiate dyslexia from dystichia? Well, all you can do is look at uh, the quality of instruction and instructional response and make a hypothesis about that. Uh, but the number of kids uh, who don't get adequate instruction uh, is pretty high. And so, for example, uh, if you're in a, what people call a balanced literacy uh, program uh, for two or three uh, years uh, and you have risk characteristics of dyslexia, uh, you may have been able to respond to instruction. But if you go two or three years without uh, adequate instruction, the clock is ticking. Uh, and so uh, your brain doesn't develop. And, you know, by third grade, uh, if you look at brains or, you know, uh, you can't tell the difference. Uh, 
in kids who haven't been taught adequately and in kids who had a biological risk for dyslexia. And there's not, there's no, there are no tests that let you differentiate that. So we need to stop asking questions like that and just focus on instruction. Mm-hmm. For many years, we've used what some call the wait to fail model, you know, just giving kids time or, well, he's a boy or she was born late in the year. They're not ready. Let's wait and see. Thank goodness here in Ontario now, we're moving towards um, early reading screenings, that universal screening from K to two, intervention beginning right in kindergarten. You did speak a little earlier in our conversation about early intervention, but if you could just touch on again why that is so important for students who may be at risk for reading difficulties, why can we not just wait and see? Well, it's, uh, it's because kids need access to print early in their development or they won't develop the neural systems uh, that they need uh, in order to be a proficient uh, reader. So, uh, you know, if you wait three or four years, the kid doesn't have access to print, uh, it's very difficult to make up for that gap in reading experience. Uh, and so the brain never fully develops. So the worst advice that somebody like a pediatrician can give or, you know, an experienced grandmother or something like that is to say, oh, he'll outgrow it. Um uh, there was a uh, researcher, a neuropsychologist in Ontario named Byron Rourke. He's uh, deceased now, but he wrote a paper, uh, you know, where he systematically reviewed uh, evidence for what we call developmental delays or developmental lags in kids that are either at risk for dyslexia or have dyslexia. And he found absolutely no evidence uh, for that. It was always uh, a deficit model. Not a, not, a, not a delay or a lag uh, model. So, you know, the message is the earlier you intervene, uh, the better. What do we know about how students with dyslexia should be taught to read and write? What are best practices for all of those educators listening to this episode right now? Well, uh, usually when somebody asks this program, they want me to name programs and uh, the thing that I would emphasize is that there's no such thing as a dyslexia-specific uh, program. Uh, there are lots of ways to skin this cat. Uh, and the key is to get the child into a program that is appropriately uh, intensive. Uh, the amount of time that you spend in intervention is probably the best predictor of intervention response, provided the intervention is appropriate. And then there, there are three criteria for an appropriate intervention. Uh, one is, I mean, well, obviously, uh, it needs to be comprehensive. It abs- for a child with dyslexia, it absolutely needs to have an explicit phonics component. And it needs to systematically teach the child the relation between what words look like and what words uh, sound like. But the program also has to be comprehensive. The best programs, the best interventions are programs that integrate uh, decoding and instruction in the alphabetic principle with an emphasis on automaticity through cumulative uh, practice, getting kids to uh, read books uh, and text at their instructional level, and then also incorporates comprehension lessons. Uh, In kids with dyslexia, if you don't make all three components explicitly, lay them out for the child, uh, give, them, give them to the child in an organized uh, fashion, uh, the intervention will not be uh, as effective. And then it needs to be differentiated. 
it needs to take into account the child's pattern of reading and writing strengths and weaknesses and then individualize uh, according to that. Now, I'm not talking about providing kids with one-on-one instruction because the number of kids that have dyslexia uh, is too large to just do one-on-one with with all kids. And there's not actually any evidence that one-on-one instruction is more effective than small group instruction, say three or four kids to one in elementary school, maybe even larger uh, in middle and high high school. Uh, but you have to be able to create homogeneous uh, groupings uh, of kids, uh, you know, so that you uh, can teach, you know, according to homogeneous uh, needs and kids will uh will group together. People ask, how are, how are you supposed to group kids? Well, the best indicators are basically the child's reading fluency rate. Uh, you can you can predict the type of instruction that a child uh, needs based on uh, how fluently they can read uh, words and text. Um, there are there are wonderful studies by Carol Connor that actually occur in the general education classroom. And what uh, Carol did in her research is she went into the general education classroom. Uh, she took the assessments that the school was doing already, assessments of word reading, uh, vocabulary, background knowledge, and she used those to determine uh, how much instruction kids needed in the code, decoding instruction, and how much they needed that was at a text level, meaning-based uh, instruction. And then she would develop uh, algorithms that would uh, do two things. It would uh, talk about how much extra instruction the child needed in either code or meaning-based instruction. And then it would group kids according to these needs, uh, groups of six kids uh, in the classroom uh, for the teacher. And she would help teachers go from large groups to small groups. I think all of that is probably the most important thing for uh, general education instructors to uh, need. I mean, when when we've done uh, work with general education uh, uh, teachers on, you know, helping kids at risk for dyslexia, uh, we spend as much time teaching teachers about appropriate instruction, how to teach phonics, how to teach comprehension, and so on. But we spend an equal amount of time on classroom management, how to go from large groups to small groups, what to do with kids, uh, when you're doing small group uh, instruction and so on. I think the most interesting thing that Carol reported is that uh, when it came to code-based instruction, that's her language uh, talking about decoding, you know, word level work. Uh, it was four times more effective uh, in small groups than it was when it was done to the large group. Uh, when it came to meaning-based instruction, that was just as effective at the small, at the large group level, as it was at the small group level, so it's it's word work where uh, small group instruction is really uh, important, and you can imagine why that's the case. I mean, uh, when we talk about uh, decoding and teaching phonics, teachers need to listen, monitor, uh, look at what the child's errors, you know, things of that sort. And uh, comprehension, uh, group-based strategies are very effective. Uh, things like peer tutoring, having the kids read to one another, having the teacher model. Uh, those are things that can be done with the whole group as well as the uh, as well as smaller uh, groups. Uh, so uh, that's a long winded uh, answer. <laughs>
No, that's great. I just want to follow up on a couple of things there. First of all, I love how you mentioned the classroom management piece, because I know we're often asked and talking about the whole, you know, we know small groups are important, but then what's the rest of the class doing? All, a lot of that's important. I also hear sometimes I'm a kindergarten teacher and people will ask me for, for advice and some will say, oh, I don't think this kind of instruction is appropriate for my kindergarten kids. They can't sit or, you know, some of those things where I think sometimes it is the classroom management and some of that other support that they need, you know, for that. And I'm wondering... So as I mentioned, I do teach kindergarten in Ontario. It's a two-year kindergarten program, kind of like pre-K and K in the same room. So when they first come to me, I don't know yet whether there's any uh, any gaps or anything. I will obviously do my universal screening and that will give me some information. But if I'm using that structured literacy, sort of the explicit and systematic, the phonics of phonemic awareness, if I'm starting out with that, is that going to hurt anybody? I mean, is that who benefits from that? Not every kid in my class is going to be at risk for dyslexia, but is that a good thing to just do with everybody? What are your thoughts? Sure. But it is absolutely. And uh, in the studies that we've done uh, where we've introduced explicit instruction, um, you know, or a, a type of structured literacy uh, program, you know, like direct instruction, for example, capital D, capital I, or, uh, you know, other approaches to uh, explicit instruction that aren't necessarily uh, captured under what com people commonly mean by structured literacy. What we have found in the general education classroom in particular uh, is that uh, explicit instruction works for everyone. No question about it, but it works twice as well for kids that are at risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't provide that explicit instruction to the entire class, uh, then the at-risk kids just don't move at all. There, there's just a beautiful example of that in a study that Barbara Foreman did in uh, 1998, uh, widely misinterpreted. Uh, but what the study basically showed is that at-risk kids benefited much more from explicit instruction than they did from uh, instruction where phonics was incidental or where the phonics piece was sort of embedded and contextual. Uh, that's, that, that's what kids with dyslexia need. And there was no difference in how uh, kids who weren't at risk uh, performed in relation to this uh, instruction. And what about students who are multilingual learners? So we're teaching them in English, but they may have another home language or, or more than one. Is any of this different for them or would we still be doing these same things? Well, the principles uh, for reading instruction are the same, uh, but it's very clear that language of instruction is a huge variable uh, for these kids. And it in particular relates to issues like identification where uh, it's quite clear that if you don't take into account language of, language of instruction uh, and the home language, uh, uh, identif identification errors are just uh, extraordinary. Um, however, what, what, what we have found in working in English and in Spanish is that uh, we get comparable gains if we teach kids in English uh, versus teaching kids in Spanish. Uh, and there's very little transfer from one uh, to the other in the early uh, grades. So, you know, you really have to take into account language and instruction, but it's probably more important to provide effective instruction in whatever language uh, you have access to uh, for instruction. You mentioned uh, ADHD earlier. I'm curious, what other conditions are common in students who have dyslexia? Well... Uh, ADHD in about uh, 50% uh, of kids, uh, there's very clear evidence 
that outcomes are much better for kids that have comorbid dyslexia and ADHD if both problems are treated simultaneously than if you try and treat just one. Uh, it's a myth, for example, that kids uh, with dyslexia who have ADHD will de develop uh, better reading skills uh, if you just put them on stimulants. It doesn't work that way. They need they need both. It's also a myth that uh, your instruction will be uh, effective uh, if you provide, for example, structured literacy and you don't treat the attention problem in some way. Uh, it's best to treat both. Uh, the same thing applies to other things that are common. About 25% of kids with dyslexia, uh, you know, experience clinical levels of anxiety. Uh, in a first grade study that uh, Amy Grills and Sharon Vaughn and I did, uh, we found that uh, uh, an anxiety scale uh, uh, was a very good predictor of an adequate response to instruction. And we found that... Uh, that uh, a substantial, about 25% of kids uh, who were simply at risk for dyslexia uh, and were struggling uh, were experiencing significant levels of anxiety. Uh, that needs to be addressed. Uh, so what Sharon Vaughn has done is to uh, introduce reading interventions that start with uh, five minutes of mindfulness training, which is an anxiety reduction technique where kids uh, basically think, visualize themselves as effective readers and they're going to have a good day and, and so on, and then follow it with a 25-minute uh, small group uh, reading uh, lesson. Uh, there, there are some classic studies done by uh, Shepard Kellum, uh, who was at Johns uh, Hopkins. It's, it's an interesting story, but what Kellum found, uh, he, he was interested in preventing behavior problems. And so he developed something called the good behavior game, uh, introduced it in chaotic school environments uh, in uh, inner city uh, urban public schools. And sure enough, he found a relation between uh, improved behavior and a reduction in behavior problems in the middle school as the kids got uh, older. These were first grade uh, interventions. But he also noted that uh, kids in the classroom were still struggling with reading and math. And he also found that uh, kids uh, uh, all knew who was struggling with reading and it was a source of anxiety. So he hypothesized that if he added a, uh, a reading intervention, for example, uh, that because the kids' behavior was better, uh, uh, they'd be able to learn and their reading outcomes would be better. Well. Uh, what he found actually was that if kids improved in their reading, and they, they would, of course, improve in their behavior, that uh, there was a significant reduction in depression in girls and adolescents and in uh, externalizing behavior problems in boys in adolescence, which is what boys and girls are differentially at risk for. Girls for internalizing problems, boys for externalizing problems, learning to read more effectively reduce that risk. So that's a, that's a very prominent uh, comorbidity that's often uh, overlooked. And then of course, the other big one is oral language problems. Lots of kids have uh, dyslexia in the context of a more general language processing uh, problem. Um, uh, other things that are common are math problems, particularly if there's an oral language problem because of the pervasive impairment of the language uh, system. I think that, and then of course, writing problems are ubiquitous, as we know.
Interesting. There's a lot to think about there in terms of some of the chicken and egg and what things you address first and what things both need to be addressed at the same time. And and yeah, interesting stuff. We often hear people argue that dyslexia is a gift. What is your professional opinion on that statement? That's a complete myth. Uh, uh, the examples that I just gave you of kids struggling to learn to read uh, indicate why this is a very misleading uh, kind of problem. I, I'm not aware of uh, any evidence that strongly supports the idea that people with dyslexia have special talents. I think those are primarily uh, individual differences and the natural orientation of development towards strengths. Uh, for for example, you know, um, you know, in the early on when we first started talking about dyslexia. You know, we, we could observe uh, people with dyslexia who had outstanding mechanical aptitude and who could really learn if they could see. Uh, that might that might have been uh, useful at the time, but imagine a mechanic, an automobile mechanic now who can't read, uh, given all the software and the manuals and all the literacy that you have to have to uh, work on cards. Uh, I, I just think this completely misleading. Dyslexia is a problem. It leads to problems with adaptation in society, underachievement. Uh, it's very clear that if you have dyslexia, and in particular, if you have both dyslexia and ADHD, your risk increases for uh, more adverse social and vocational outcomes, for behavioral difficulties, uh, just a host of problems. So there's one myth about dyslexia. I know another pervasive one is the whole individuals with dyslexia see letters backwards um, that we hear sometimes and is, is not true. What are some other common myths and misconceptions that you often hear about? The, um, the seeing letters backward is really interesting. Uh, there's a, a neuroscientist named Stan DeHane who has addressed that pretty systematically. Uh, and it's clear that when people learn to read, they make mirror images of words uh, in the, 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 the visual systems that are related to uh, reading so that, um, so that you see, uh, uh, you know, mirror images in both the left part of the brain and the right part of the brain. Uh, and as you learn to read, it becomes lateralized to the left hemisphere. Uh, and so those mirror images go away. In people with dyslexia, they don't lateralize as quickly, and so uh, those mirror images don't go away as quickly, but they generally uh, go away as the person has some sort of uh, reading uh, experience. Uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in an article that Sharon Vaughn and I wrote, uh, I'll send you the link, uh, we listed 18 common misunderstandings of dyslexia. And some of them we've uh, addressed. One is uh, the wait to fail, the idea that you can wait to intervene with dyslexia, that there are uh, specific and unique screening identification approaches that will allow you to differentiate dyslexia from other word level uh, problems, that uh, dyslexia is simply uh, not spending enough time in reading, um, the idea that colored lenses or overlays help uh, with reading, uh, that reading comprehension indicates that a person has dyslexia, that, uh, that it's rare, that dyslexia is rare and individuals outgrow it, uh, that, 
improving home literacy will resolve dyslexia. That's that's not uh, useful. I mean, certainly home literacy environments put the person at risk for language problems and therefore literacy problems, but that's not uh, a sufficient explanation for dyslexia. Uh, brain training, all the all the things that you that you see that are going to train the brain to dyslexia are usually uh, uh, myths uh, because they they may improve, for example, uh, working memory, uh, but they don't generalize to better reading. Uh, cognitive isolation, cognitive training isolation is not uh, useful. And there's no such thing as an effective intervention that doesn't involve uh, reading instruction. Uh, those are just uh, some of the uh, some of the myths. Uh, but you can look at the article and uh, identify uh, others that we think are important. Absolutely, and we can share the link in our in our show notes for listeners as well. I love how you mentioned the home literacy piece because I think we do know so much about the importance of certain things happening at home and, and setting kids up. But my heart breaks for some of those parents who feel like they did all the right things and then somehow feel like they're getting blamed for their child's dyslexia. And so I hope any parents who are listening are kind of being uh, being affirmed on that point that it's not your fault. Yeah, when I, uh, it's not the teacher's fault uh, either because uh, teachers always have good intentions. They just may not have the training and the knowledge that they need to be effective uh, uh, instructors for kids that are at risk. Uh, and so we obviously need a lot of work. There's a lot of work to do in terms of helping uh, teachers learn uh, about effective uh, instruction. And it has to be repeated because teachers recycle so frequently. They come teach for a while, lead the profession, you know, it has to be an ongoing process. It's not something that you're just going to fix, you know, in a two or three year uh, period. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, and for all the educators listening right now, I'm sure they have been hanging on to your every word to, to soak up these things so that we can improve our practice, right? I used to teach with the whole balanced literacy approach and hate thinking about how I failed some kids in the past, but now I think we're, we're doing better as we learn. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to share with listeners, anything about dyslexia that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I, I really like people to be aware. I, I mean, I know everybody's aware of all the policy initiatives and the focus on uh, dyslexia and so on, which I think is very good. Uh, but this is not my first rodeo. Uh, I've been through uh, different waves of uh, efforts to, you know, use the science of reading to improve uh, reading instruction. Uh, it's not something that's going to be a short-term fix. It's not something that you can just do for a few years. It's going to take a sustained effort to actually improve literacy skills uh, in our children. Uh, a lot of people, uh, when, I, when I talk like this, a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, it's a continuum. Uh, and there will always be kids at the bottom. But I think what you have, the way you have to think about it is that we need to shift the continuum. We need to... Uh, uh, improve reading in everybody so that the normal distribution has a different midpoint. Dr. Jack Fletcher, thank you so much for being here for this episode of Reading Road Trip. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Show notes for this episode with all the links and information you need can be found at podcast.idaontario.com. And you have been listening to Season 2, Episode 8 with Dr. Jack Fletcher. Now it's time for that typical end of the podcast call to action. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Reading Road Trip, we'd love it if you could rate and or review it in your podcast app, as this is extremely helpful for a growing podcast. And of course, we welcome any social media love you feel inspired to spread as well. Feel free to tag IGA Ontario and me. My handle is This Mum Loves on Twitter and Facebook and Kate This Mum Loves on Instagram. Make sure you're following the Reading Road Trip podcast in your app and watch for new episodes dropping every Monday. We couldn't bring Reading Road Trip to you without behind-the-scenes support from Caitlin Hanna, Brittany Haynes, and Melinda Jones at IDA Ontario. If you're enjoying Reading Road Trip, please consider making a donation to IDA Ontario, a volunteer-run charity that depends on donations to do our work supporting educators and families. I'm Kate Wynn, and along with my co-producer Una Malcolm, we hope this episode of Reading Road Trip has made your path to evidence-based literacy instruction just a little bit clearer and a lot more fun. Join us next time when we bring another fabulous guest along for the ride on Reading Road Trip. <laughs>